0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. I'm really, really grateful that we got to see that. I want to ask you if you bow with me and let's pray together before we dive into the Word of God. God, today, help us to remember the things that are really most true, because life beats us up and tells us lies and defeats us and gives us words that have no place in our hearts. You tell the greater truth. Help us not to hear the thousand other voices that want to destroy but to remember you and to hear your voice. Now cause your word to speak to each of us powerfully and in the same voice that we would hear you and our hearts would be strengthened and encouraged. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. I I acknowledge that for most churches um, on Easter Sunday, There are some new faces. And so, if you are new to our church, I want to thank you for coming. I I really rejoice in your visit and want you to feel really at home here. We welcome you. Uh, If you're new to our church, my name is Dave, and my privilege is to serve as lead pastor here. I've been here for the last 21 years, and if I don't do something stupid, I hope to be here for another 20, 30 years. Uh, I love this church, and when I see those stories, Like I said, man, it's so easy to forget how much God is at work. You may have just seen a skip, but I I really, I want you to understand what a story lies behind each of those pieces of paper that got flipped around, and how much seriousness and prayer and thought went into each person writing what they put down there. And that just—it's such a good thing to see, to remember. Amen. This morning, um, I'm going to break from the Sermon on the Mount series. And the the message, the title is Salvation Speaks. And I'm doing something weird. I'm preaching on Easter from the Old Testament. It's weird, but I think you understand why. Because as I went to the Lord week after week leading up to Easter asking, what do you want me to preach? One phrase kept coming back to my heart over and over, and it's in the second verse of this chapter. And, and so I'm going to be obedient to what I think the Lord is telling me. And the idea is that just like everybody who was in the skit here, every life speaks. Whether we intend to or not, our lives speak and they tell a story as clearly sometimes as if we were holding a cardboard sign that had a word or a phrase written on it that says to the world, this is what I am. This is how I see myself. This is what I think is true. I love the motif of people holding up signs because that makes overt what is already very obvious to everyone. Every life speaks. Every life says something. Very often, we don't even need to hold up the sign because even without words, whether it's in our countenance, our mood, maybe it's our body language, maybe it's the choices we've made, Maybe it's the actions we take, but every one of us, whether we intend to or not, we are speaking a message to the watching world that says, this is what I think is most true of me. This is what I am, above all other descriptions. We do use words, though, don't we? I mean, I read a Scientific American study, um, an article that said that on average, we Americans speak about 16,000 words a day. It's a lot of words. And if we could hear, and the the interesting thing is most of us in the words we speak, that is a great power, a freedom we have. Other people can make us hear things we don't want to hear, but the words coming out of our mouths are all us. The words that come out of our mouths reflect choices and worldviews and perspectives, and they really do tell the truth about our story, don't they? Think about the words that you speak. And the the way they study this is they had a little device in people's pockets that recorded 30 second random snippets every 12 minutes or so throughout the day to get a word count. And I just wonder how interesting it would have been to hear those disjointed every 12 minute, 30 second clips and to see and cobble together the words. They were not looking at content, they were looking at frequency. But I wonder if we looked at the actual words we speak all throughout the day and put them all together if a theme would not arise. So clearly that if we held up a blank cardboard sign and invited the people closest to us to take a big Sharpie, one of those Magnum Sharpies, and just write on our sign the word they hear us saying with our lives, what word would that be? Scared? Defeated? Frivolous? Bitter? victorious, tough, every one of us is telling a story, aren't we? Have you noticed that when something significant happens to us, we delight in it because today with social media and dinner parties and all that, a story is not just an experience, it's a story we get to tell over and over. In fact, some, for some of us, when something happens, the first thought is not, look what happened to me, it's, oh, I can't wait to talk about this. The next time I get together with someone, some of us don't even wait that long. It's right away. It happened, and it's on Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat. In real time, the world around us is seeing what happens to us. And when we've experienced something good, something significant, it immediately becomes part of the folklore of our story, and we tell that over and over. Nobody has to prompt us. When something significant happens, we tell anyone who will listen. We even massage a conversation around so that it will come around to you know, like if you just bought a boat, every conversation ultimately will turn to boats. It's raining. It reminds me, if it rains enough, you get lakes and rivers, and I have a boat, so if you... Do you, you understand what I'm saying? is, If you have something significant, it's not like you have to be prodded to talk about it. It's as if the significant stories of our lives tell themselves. We can't wait to talk about it. It's especially true... If we've experienced a deliverance, a rescue, a near death experience, by the skin of our teeth, we made it. I mean, just think about something as small as if a police officer pulls you over and somehow you walk away from that encounter without a ticket. In the big scheme of things, that's such a small deliverance, but if it happens to me, everyone in my world knows it happened. Partly because I've been, and I don't I say this in my shame, I've been pulled over more than 40 times since I started driving at the age of 16. I've got a bit of a lead foot. And most of those times, I didn't get away without a ticket. So on the rare occasions where a police officer, you know, pulls me over, and he just goes, I'm going to let you off, it's like I won the lottery. And when we've experienced a deliverance or rescue, that's the best kind of story. We can't stop talking about it. The beginning of Psalm 107, here's what David says. There it is. He says, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And then he says this, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. Now, I'll be honest, I I learned it more from the 1984 NIV, and the the way I heard it in the songs and stuff growing up was, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. And I can't figure it out, but all these weeks leading up to Easter, when I asked God to give me a message for Easter Sunday, that's the phrase that rang out in my heart over and over, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. So I just really dug into this passage, wanting to know what God had to say to us. And, And I think it's so simply stated in that second Verse. The way King David says this, speaking about all the remembrances he has of the way God saved, his saving work, his rescuing work in the lives of Israel again and again. And there are are only a few cases, I think, where looking at multiple translations gives you such a robust, fuller picture. In this verse, it's fascinating to read how it reads in different translations. In the NIV, it says, let the redeemed of the Lord tell their story. But in the New Living Translation, it says, has the Lord redeemed you? Then speak out. The English Standard Version says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. I'm glad somebody kept that old school. And here's the message by Eugene Peterson. All of you set free by God, tell the world. It's a simple message that if you have met Jesus Christ and he has saved you, That is, without a doubt, the greatest story you have to tell. And while you may experience a tremendous amount of strength and private joy, one of the great privileges and, in fact, the irrepressible impulse of those who are truly saved is to tell the story. And we're not talking about evangelism with a purpose. We're talking about a testimony. It's my story. It's not a story that will lead to some decision in your life. I'm telling you, this is what happened to me. And of all the things, the many things that have happened to me over the course of my life, this is, in fact, without a doubt, the greatest thing that has happened. The story of all stories that defines me. What story does your life tell? And I'm not saying that in a scolding voice at all. I want you to pause for a minute. <clears throat> we thought about doing this once a long time ago at a staff retreat, and we nixed the idea. But just you know, think about if people got a chance to write on your sign the one word they associate with the story of your life. Are you ready to see what they write? Do you know that probably most of those people would write similar words because our stories speak? What word would be written on the sign you held up today? It's sobering, and I don't have a slide for this, but it's sobering to think about Romans one twenty one, where Paul in his letter to the Romans says, it's one of the marks of a person who has rejected God that they neither worship God nor give thanks to him. What he's saying is those who have rejected God have decided to, to take their chances apart from God. One of the things that marks them is they look at the world and at their life and they say, I don't really feel like worshiping today. There was a day in my life when I raised my hands, I sang, I even jumped, I danced. Today, there's no reason for joy. I don't know what I would worship God for. He also says that there's a mark of those who have rejected God that they cannot find a reason to give thanks to God. I don't know what's so good in my life today that I would thank God for anything. Now, I don't, I don't, again, say that in a scolding voice. Here's what I am saying. It would be a little bit like being in the in the uh, Democratic National Congress headquarters, having a strategy meeting, and one guy at the table keeps going, yeah, but seriously, guys, what are we going to do about all these immigrants? And how are we going to do something to curb the work of Planned Parenthood? And, and everyone at the table is like, <clears throat> we really appreciate how many hours you volunteer, but you really don't sound like you are one of us. Like, you don't, you resemble the other team more than you resemble us. And I guess what Paul is saying is, there are people who once knew God, but over the course of time, something happened to them, and they no longer felt they could worship God. There was a day when they could. They wanted to, but that impulse is almost gone. And they cannot think of something to give thanks to God for. And so David offers us a reminder here that when that happens, we'll give the benefit of the doubt. It's usually not because of open rebellion. It's not usually because of unbelief. It's because we've forgotten. It's because we've forgotten something. That we have decided to anchor our story to the totally unpredictable and unstable travails of life on earth. We've decided to say, I will decide what my life feels like, what my worth is, how good God is, by watching everyone else's Facebook feed and torturing myself at how crappy my life looks compared to theirs and theirs and theirs and theirs and theirs. And David says, that's not how we do it. We don't anchor our story to the little ups and downs because you will go crazy. Our story is anchored in the great faithfulness of God. That's our story. And if you can anchor onto that story, your ship won't move in a storm. But you latch your trailer to the wrong horse, it'll go where it takes you. You'll have no control over where your heart ends up if you hitch onto the wrong locomotive, onto the wrong horse. <clears throat> the story that our lives tell is greatly affected by the things that happen to us. There's really no way around that. The narrative we tell is in part a reflection of the narrative that life hands us, isn't it? So we can understand why, in some cases, a repeated pattern of rejection or pain or disappointment or conflict would lead a person to bend their story in the direction of despair and hurt and cynicism and even bitterness. It's easy to understand why when a person experiences a long, unbroken string of bad fortune, their story would begin to lean that way. Much like if you took a young sapling and you kept sitting on it every day, that tree, when it's older, is going to do this. I mean, it's just how it's going to work. Easter, then, is a day for all of us who follow Jesus to take a deep breath And the most important work we do on Easter is we remember something. Let me say that again. The most important work we do on Easter spiritually is we take a deep breath and we remember something that is unfailingly true. We re-anchor our story to the story of salvation which Jesus Christ made available. We pause to remember together that before all the scars and wounds and disappointments that life has handed us, there was a time when we were lost, and he found us out there wandering. There was a time when we stumbled about in darkness, and he invited us to walk in marvelous light. There was a time when we groaned under the weight of our own guilt and shame, and he found us, and he took that away, and he set us free. That's what we remember on Easter, is that despite all the little stories that mark us, the great story for all who have truly met Christ is the day he saved us. That is the, start, the starting point of our whole story. It's the bedrock foundation upon which we will understand every other thing that affects us in our story. And if we lose our hold on that, everything comes unraveled, and it won't matter how many good days we string together for you, despair will set in because you've forgotten the greatest story of all. I've been hearing some discouraging stories about my colleagues around the country, men I know personally who have been accused of plagiarism because they lifted things out of an article. And so I'm being extra paranoid about giving credit where credit is due. So I'm like on edge now going, I don't want to accidentally plagiarize anything. So I'm going to openly acknowledge I read an article By Professor Bruce Alford, who is a dean and a professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And this article was entitled, Why the Resurrection is the Greatest Truth. It was a helpful article, but I think the real gem that I picked up was when he talked about J.R.R. Tolkien. He was saying that Tolkien, when he wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy, had become gripped by the truth of the resurrection of Jesus. He couldn't understand why so many churchmen weren't moved by this, because he saw it as a storyteller as the most gripping story that ever could be told. How could such a thing be? And he wanted his readers to understand this, but he knew that Westerners, by and large, in that time, really didn't like fairy tale endings where everything is neatly, like pretty much 99.9% of everything coming out of Hollywood, it's all tied up neatly. Even when the hero dies, the last camera scene, his hand goes, oh, he's alive. Thank God nothing sad ever happens in Hollywood or on the earth or in the universe. That's But you see, like Americans tend to reject artificially happy endings. And instead, what he learned was people want... Endings that are more realistic. By realistic, we mean depressing, sad, like life. (laughs) Don't give me fear. Nobody falls in love. It just goes, oh, yeah, we fell in love for like six months, and then we're not together anymore. That's life. That's realistic, right? How sad. But he understood that was actually the real message of the world. But when he wrote the Lord of the Rings trilogy, he wanted so badly for his audience to hear that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ... An incredibly joyful ending is, in fact, the most realistic ending for the human story. While we look at the world and nothing but despair and cynicism grows, when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ and his empty tomb, the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope that the most realistic end to everything is joy, victory, power, not defeat. And that's how he wrote it. He wrote it in like a gazillion pages. And Peter Jackson turned it into a story worth watching, but the real story, the real story was a man who desperately wanted modern Western people to realize what a tremendous thing had happened in the universe when Jesus rose from the dead. At the very end of The Return of the King, the last book in the trilogy, there's a scene in which... Against all odds, Frodo and Samwise Gamgee survive this cataclysmic event. They thought for sure everyone they knew was dead and that they were dead ducks. And then they somehow come out alive. And I want to read you an excerpt from it. As Gandalf, who they presume dead, approaches and Sam says to him, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Listen to this. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? Gandalf replies, a great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment, for days upon days without count. I think that's the climactic sentence of the whole trilogy, when Sam simply asks in marvelous wonder that everything he thought was lost is one, everyone he thought was dead is alive, and he cannot understand how this could be. And he asks the question, is this how it works then? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Because God knows the winding journey of those thousands of pages was filled with sadness and loss and defeat and tragedy. That's life in the world. It should not surprise anyone but the most naive that life here largely sucks so much of the time. It's filled with pain. Your team loses the big game. You don't hear what you want from the doctor. That's just part of life here. And if that's all life was, I wouldn't bother coming to work on Sunday. The resurrection of Jesus Christ reminds us that our stories, as sad as they may be, are not the real story. And aren't you grateful for that? Because who wants to live in a world where the cynics are right? Do you even want to If you're a cynic, do you even want to live in the world you've made? where you're snarky and sarcastic and pessimistic and all of that, and no one tells the truth, and and happiness is an illusion. Do you want to live in that world? Of course you don't. No one does. Sam's question speaks to the heart of the human hope, that though life is so filled with sadness, will it come out well in the end? Even if the things troubling me now never change in my earthly life. I'm winding it down, so stay with me. If our, if our message is distorted, if the story our lives tell bends towards the sad and defeated and pessimistic, remember what we said, the great work is not to chastise yourself and try to spark a belief or faith where it doesn't exist. It is to remember because our optimism, our hope, our faith is not rooted in willpower or a change of perspective. It is on a response to something God actually truly did. We don't conjure faith as a decision or act of willpower. Faith is always a response to something God actually did. And so we look at Psalm 107, And I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to read large patches of this great chapter of Scripture. And I want you to listen for the heart of God as I read. Because what David is doing in the rest of the psalm is he is detailing some of the great saving works God did for ancient Israel. He doesn't yet point to the ultimate salvation in the afterlife or what Jesus would do, but he reminds the people... That God has been exceedingly faithful, meeting them in the real mud and the muck and the mire of their earthly lives. And I've categorized these as much as I could. One of the things God saves them from is homelessness and hunger and thirst. Another way of saying that is when we are powerless to get resources, God provides the things we most immediately need. Listen to what he says in verses 4 to 9. Listen to the heart of God in these words. Some wandered in the wilderness, lost and homeless. Hungry and thirsty, they nearly died. Lord, help, they cried in their trouble. And he rescued them from their distress. He led them straight to safety, to a city where they could live. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he has done for them. For he satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. You would talk about yourself as a a mammal. These are the things we need, and God provides. He also saves people from the chains of bondage and powerlessness. How many of us, and you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of us have been there? Stuck, powerless. I want not to be this person, but I don't know how not to be. It just gets a hold of me, and that's what I am. I wish I were stronger, but I don't know how to break out. Listen to what David says. Some sat in darkness and deepest gloom, imprisoned in iron chains of misery. They rebelled against the words of God, scorning the counsel of the Most High. That is why he broke them with hard labor. They fell, and no one was there to help them. Lord, help, they cried in their trouble. And he saved them from their distress. He led them from the darkness and deepest gloom. He snapped their chains. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he has done for them. For he broke down their prison gates of bronze. He cut apart their bars of iron. That's just awesome. I was surprised to read the next verses because they describe what sounds very much like depression. He saves people from depression and despair that rises out of sin, whether it's their own sin or the sin committed against them. Listen to these words. Don't zone out. Listen, because this will really speak to you. Some were fools. They rebelled and suffered for their sins. They couldn't stand the thought of food. And they were knocking on death's door. Lord, help, they cried in their trouble. And he saved them from their distress. He sent out his word and healed them, snatching them from the door of death. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he has done for them. Let them offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and sing joyfully about his glorious acts. And this last one, I question whether I would include it because not many of us are sailing people. But he delivered them from storms at sea. And if we make this more symbolic, it is really intended to communicate that when you find yourselves at the mercy of storms you cannot tame, God delivers you even there. Some went off to sea in ships, plying the trade routes of the world. They too observed the Lord's power in action his impressive work on the deepest seas. He spoke, and the winds rose, stirring up the waves. The ships were tossed to the heavens and plunged again to the depths. The sailors cringed in terror. They reeled and staggered like drunkards and were at their wit's end. Doesn't that describe how it feels to be afraid? Lord, help, they cried in their trouble, and he saved them from their distress he calmed the storm to a whisper and stilled the waves. What a blessing was that stillness as he brought them safely into harbor. Let them praise the Lord for his great love and for the wonderful things he has done for them. Let them exalt him publicly before the congregation, before the leaders of the nation. Here, I believe, is the point of David's retelling all these works of saving which god did for israel he was saying that each one of these acts of saving was a reminder to them that god was still with them and he was for them and i would depict that with this little collection of life preservers which many of us have experienced unless we're total liars god has in all of our lives demonstrated his saving work in small things hasn't he There are times when we were genuinely in trouble, not sure what would happen. Some of us finished college, we're like, no one will hire me. (laughs) I screwed up big time. And still, 10 years later, you're working for a living. Who is to get the credit for that? See, God again and again, and not in perfect record, it's not batting a 1,000 because that wouldn't be good for us. But God has worked, and he has reminded us, and for Israel, who had not yet seen Jesus... This is the way they knew God was with them, was that when they had need and they were in distress, what does it say over and over in that psalm? Lord, help! They would cry. And the Lord would come and he would help them. And that was another reminder, this God is with us. And that pointed forward to Jesus, meaning that if God is willing to rescue us in all of these times of distress, will he not in the great final end be our hope and our rescue? The promise is given to us as Israel that we will be God's people. We will wake up with him. Will not that be the truth of us? If God will save in these little things, will he not save us in the end? It was meant to point us towards the cross of Jesus. Jesus himself says this in Matthew 13. Speaking to his disciples, he says, you guys don't know how lucky you are. Generations of faithful Old Testament Jewish saints long to see what you see and to hear what you hear. But they had to live their whole lives in faith, just believing in something that hadn't happened. But here's what he says to them. Blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it. And to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Here's what Jesus is saying. We have a huge advantage over the Old Testament saints because someone gave us a huge spoiler and told us how the movie ends. There's no such thing as a true spoiler in American cinema, cinema, right? Because I can just tell you, every time the guy looks like he's going to get killed, he's not going to get killed. They'll cut it close, but he's not going to die. Um, That's the real ultimate spoiler, but in a way that reflects the story of Christianity. We don't lose at the end because he won. This is the starting point of faith. Whereas for Israel, the starting point of faith was, is he still showing up? Is he still there? Is God with us? And if the cloud left, if the smoke left, if the presence left, they would be quaking in fear, uncertain whether God was for them and with them it was the most insecure way to follow God because it really was anchored to the ups and downs of their fortunes. Here then is the great advantage. We have Jesus and he has done it and that's the place where our faith starts. We don't say, will my marriage last? Will my friendships endure? Will my health get better? I'm not sure about any of those things. I hope so. But the way that we exercise faith in all of those trials is with this starting point. Jesus, save me. What else would limit him? What else could I ask of him? If that's the starting point, it gives us a completely different perspective to think about how we approach all the trials that are sure to come. When I'm at an audition or a tryout, when I'm at the big tournament, and I really want to make it to the next level, and my heart is quaking with uncertainty and fear, yes, you got to trust all the hard work and training, but do you have a God in heaven who has already demonstrated for you in this world that he loves you, that he delights to give you good things? That doesn't mean you're entitled to every good thing every time you ask, but do you believe that a God in heaven has already proven the case about how he feels for you, what he's able to do for you? And even if the winding journey of our lives takes us through very painful paths, Once again, we come full circle and remember that no matter how this earthly life turns out, the thing that our faith began with is a treasure that can never be taken away. And I wish more Christians today could remember this because it would make our witness to the watching world so much more real and strong that I won't talk about my God like he disappeared just because I'm having a bad spell. But I talk about a God who once found me when I was lost. And he called me into marvelous light when I was stumbling about in the dark. When all I could live for was myself, and I was heaping guilt upon guilt on my shoulders, he set me free and taught me how to live for him. That's who my God is. And if I go through hell and back on this earth, that doesn't change a thing about him. He is my God, my Savior. That's what I remember. That's what we remember on Easter Sunday. That's the starting point of our story, brothers and sisters. That can never be taken away from us. Everything else can, but not that. That is our treasure, and we guard it in our hearts. It is our shared story. That's why we are together in this room, because we may have nothing in common but that, but it's enough. I want to close by reading for you The words of John 14, 19. Jesus spoke these words to his closest friends on the earth just before his departure, before he would suffer horribly and depart from them. And he knew that their hearts would be troubled because after he left, it's just like how you feel when you have teenage kids and you go on vacation for the first time without them and you think of them at home, getting into all kinds of trouble, the house starting on fire, and you just feel like, what if they can't handle it? When you send your kids off to school, and you're like, what if they can't handle it? Some of us have younger siblings over whom we feel a very maternal or paternal concern, and we're not ready for them to spread their wings and be out in the world. And Jesus felt those things for his friends. He was leaving, and they would have to face this world without him. And it wasn't going to be an easy life for any of them. Every last one of the 12 suffered as their lives were coming to a close. He says these words to them to strengthen their hearts. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. Because I live, you also will live, says Jesus. I cannot predict what winding path our lives are going to take. Here's the truth. Some of us are going to experience a lot more pain and hardship than others in this room. If we were to talk about fairness, life wouldn't look fair at all. Some of us will bear so many more scars than the others. We will all experience loss and hardship, but it will look different for each of us. And I cannot tell you standing here at this pulpit that it's all going to work out down here. I would be a liar if I even promised that. But one thing I can say without shame or hesitation from up here is that no matter how this journey goes, how many valleys you got to sink into, how many hits you have to take along the way, The end, because of Jesus and his resurrection, a joyful end is the most realistic one. No matter how many times we lose down here, when it's all said and done, we win with him. Because he lives, we also will live. For some of us, this is the change we most need to experience right now, is to remember the great salvation that is ours in Jesus, to come alive in that salvation and to find in what Jesus did strength to face the hardships of the day. Have you forgotten? And I invite you to bow your heads right now with me and let's remember together this great thing which Jesus did, which we celebrate today. As we begin, I think we should begin where we started this message. What story do you believe your life tells today? Because your life is speaking. The people closest to you hear the message your life speaks. What word would you hold up on that sign this morning if you could walk in front and show? Is it the message you want your life to tell? If not, remember Jesus. Ask him to give you a better story to tell. Don't you want to be able to flip over that card and say, that's what I was. But in Christ, this is what I am. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church